Amen. Well, uh, this morning, uh, we're going to go back to talking about, as we did in the fall, the gifts of the Spirit. But as I told you in the fall, we're going to shift gears. In the fall, we talked about the Romans 12 gifts, right? The ones I call the gifts of the Father. The ones that are about how we're wired, hardwired from God. And uh, the operation of those gifts in your life. And we've done the surveys and all the rest of it. And we're working on all process and all that information. And it's awesome. Now we're going to talk about the gifts that cause all the controversy. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians gifts. The gifts of the, of the Spirit. And uh, we're going to talk about those for the next number of weeks. And uh, I'm excited about this. Uh, nothing like a good fight in the house of the Lord. So we'll get some stuff going. Uh, you know, get some, get into that, wade into that controversial stuff. And uh, we're, we're excited about that. It's, it's going to be good. And, uh, and so this morning I wanted to start off just by talking about the Holy Spirit. Where does the Spirit dwell? Where does the Spirit dwell? And kind of clear some of that up. Then uh, next week uh, I'm going to talk to you about why I am not a cessationist. All right? So some of you say, what in the world is a cessationist. Well, you'll have to look it up because uh, I'm not going to tell you right now. But next week, I'm going to tell you why I'm not one. And, uh, and then we can talk about that a little bit. You know, in 1989, I was faced with a really difficult decision. Now, this is going back 30 years, but I was faced with a really difficult decision. I had asked for a, we used to call them ghetto blasters, but I don't think that's kosher now. You can call them boom boxes or portable acoustic systems. I mean, nobody really buys them anymore because everybody walks around with these isolation things where they don't talk to people anymore and they put them in their ears and you cut the whole world out. It used to be you only cut out the people that were, you know, not in your, your posse or in your group. You know, you guys and all your friends sat around listening to your blaring music on a boombox, sharing the experience, but now everybody's isolated and walking around as individuals. Uh, but back then, headphones weren't really in. And, and if they were any good, they were so big, they weighed more than your head. You know what I mean? Like, so you got yourself a ghetto blaster and, or a boombox. And you walked around that thing, you know, 30 years ago. And uh, so I had wanted this, this for Christmas. And then an opportunity came up. Uh, I was contacted with an opportunity as a pastor to go on a pastor's orientation tour of the Holy Land. For only 350 bucks. Yeah, included airfare, hotel, all this stuff. Hello? That's like 600 bucks today. Dirt cheap, right? Right? So it was like, do I pick the, the, the boom box or do I go to Israel? I prayed about it for about three seconds and said, guess what? I'm going to Israel. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I ever really got that boom box, although we're going to buy a HomePod this week. So... Uh, we're going to get that. That'll be, you know, the, the, the makeup for the, the, the boombox. But, you know, ended up going to Israel. And uh, how many here have been to Israel before? Let me see your hands. Put them up nice and high if you've been to Israel. Nice and high. We've got, well, we got half a dozen people. Half a dozen people have been to Israel. It's a remarkable experience. Everybody should go at least once in their lifetime. Uh, you know, but it was one of those things. We went on this trip to Israel. And I went with a bunch of pastors. I can't remember how many of us there was total, maybe 24 or so. And uh, it's one of those things where you, you basically go and you run where Jesus walked, right? So we would do a whole day's tour in the morning and another whole day's tour in the afternoon. And so they want you to experience in one week what a two-week tour is. 
So we were just going and going and going and going. And you get to see basically everything. And the idea is they're subsidizing this because they're hopeful that you're going to be able to put together a team and take a team in the next year. And so I, I, I did my best on that, but I couldn't find enough people that wanted to go to be able to put together a tour uh, in the next year. So anyway, I still keep in touch with them and, and, and all the rest of that. And one day, you know, we'll take a, a team there. Anyway, there are many things I'll remember from the trip, but my first uh, impression that was made on me was while we were in the air, we were flying El Al Airlines, which is an Israeli airline, and we're on the plane, and as the, we're flying over uh, and the sun rose, right, as soon as sunrise hit, all of these Orthodox Jews got out of their seats on the plane and knelt down in the aisles and they began to pray facing Jerusalem. I mean, dozens of them all over the airplane. They ban- began to get down and pray down on their knees, and they began to pray facing Jerusalem. It was a fascinating experience. Uh, this happened before I ever got there. I'm still in the air. And I thought, man, that's, that's remarkable. And uh, literally, as soon as the first peak of the sun came over the horizon, they began to, to get up and to pray uh, facing Jerusalem. Now, uh, why did they pray facing Jerusalem? Well, you see, as a devout Jew, even though it lies in desecration, A devout Jew believes that you're supposed to pray facing the temple in Jerusalem. Because as you remember, and and we'll get to this in a minute, uh, Solomon's temple was dedicated. The presence of God, right, showed up. And they believe that the temple is the place of the presence of God. And so they would would pray facing Jerusalem. And uh, to this day, uh, you know, if you go to Jerusalem... Uh, as Barry was talking about last week, remember he tried to get to the what they call the Wailing Wall? He tried to get to the wall. It's, it's one of the walls of the temple. Uh, and on the Temple Mount, there's now a mosque there. But uh, So the Jews are not allowed up there into that Muslim portion of the city. But the wall is still exposed. And so Jews will go to this wall, which is one of the walls of the original Temple of Solomon, and, and they'll pray facing the wall. And that, the, the courtyard area outside that is packed with people in prayer. And so lots of people will take notes of paper and fold them up with prayer requests on them and stick them in little holes in the, in the stone joints and in the, the mortar there, there on that wall. And so they gather there for, for prayer. And you'll see Jews uh, praying and facing the wall all over the place. And if you're a guy, they give you a little skull cap to wear to go down in there and to pray and and uh, you know, little cardboard ones if you don't have one of your own. And you, you clip it on, you go down, and you pray in that area. So we went down there, and we spent some time uh, praying there. And uh, you know, all of this is because of a concept of the dwelling of God. And we're going to talk about that here this morning. So um, I'll skip this verse. This is our, has been our key verse for the whole series. But we'll go on this morning. Where the Spirit dwells. God in the tabernacle. Now, to understand all this in context, we have to go all the way back. We have to go back to the book of Exodus. And there we read, it says this, Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Amen? In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, 
Then they did not set it until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. All right? So until this day in the history of Israel, if you'd asked Moses where he thought God dwelled, he'd probably have said on Mount Horeb, where you know, he received the revelation of the Ten Commandments. He probably would have said that. But now God commissioned him to build this tabernacle, and firsthand all of Israel experienced the glory of God being made manifest uh, in a cloud and in fire that settled upon the tabernacle. And when God wanted Israel to move, then what he did was he lifted his presence, and they followed the cloud and followed the glory, right? And that's how they knew when it was time to move, you know, when it was time to get up and go wherever they needed to go. And so we read in this how the, the manifestation of the presence of God was in this place. God established the tabernacle as his dwelling place. Now, I believe the Jews still understood that God was everywhere. I mean, if you were to ask a Jewish believer, is God everywhere, they would say yes. They had a clear understanding of the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere. But they would also say to you that there was a special manifestation of his presence, that there was a dwelling of his presence that was in the tabernacle of God. And it was, it was evidenced by the glory and by the fire that resided uh, in and upon the tabernacle of God. What was the significance of the tabernacle? Well, verse 33 said, Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and the altar, put up the curtain, the entrance to the courtyard, and so Moses finished his work. The significance was that it had all been set up specifically to the details that God gave, and when Moses completed the work exactly as God told him to do it, then he honored that work with his presence in the cloud and the fire. And that was considered... Uh, the most holy of places where God by his presence dwelt. Moses was faithful to do exactly what God told him to do to complete all of the requirements and then God infused that place, the tabernacle, with his presence. He would not, could not dwell in a place or occupy a place that was, that was not consecrated, that was still representative of sinful flesh. God had to have a holy place, a place that was completely set aside for him, that was built exactly as he detailed it and outlined it. That is where his presence would dwell. Does everybody follow that? And so we see the culmination of that story of Moses following the directives of God. And when he finished it, it says, The cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, the fire in the cloud by night, and in the sight of all the house of Israel during all their travels. God's presence was there. The Lord was with them wherever they went. Kind of, as the scripture says, like a friend that sticks closer than a brother. The presence was there. Went with Israel wherever they had, or they went with the presence wherever the presence went, right? Isn't that awesome? That's what we see uh, in the story of the tabernacle. And so we see for the first time that God is, is, is seen as dwelling in a specific place given with specific instructions on how that place should be built and all the rest of it. Now, now we move to the second portion that's relevant to my story I opened up with. Uh, the spirit dwelling in Solomon's temple. It says, when the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord 
filled his temple. Then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. And while the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and blessed him. So Solomon hadn't built this temple as a place for man to dwell. He had built this as a place, a dwelling place for God. And on that day of the temple's dedication, the awesome presence of the Lord filled Solomon's temple. And this is the same temple where the, 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 the Jews today pray against the wall, the external, exterior wall of the temple. They can't get any closer, any other parts of it excavated because, like I said, uh, the Oscar Omar is on top of it. But, but today, that's where they pray on that western wall of the, the gate, I mean, of the, the temple of Solomon. And so they gathered there to pray even to this day. And uh, because the presence of the Lord dwelt in this place, Solomon began the habit of praying facing Jerusalem. No matter where he was, he would pray facing Jerusalem. And to this day, Jews do the same. They pray facing Jerusalem because of the manifestation of the glory of God that happened in the temple of Solomon. And so you have to understand that uh, this, again, was not because the average Jewish person thought that God only dwelled in the temple, right? They still believed in an omnipresent God. But they also realized there was a manifestation of the presence of God that was made literally visible and tangible in the temple of the Lord. Now, in this case, we see that over the years, that, that cloud did not remain. Uh, it was there at its inauguration. There was the cloud and the fire at the inauguration of Solomon's temple such that they could not continue the work. Uh, but it was still considered to be the, the place of the presence of God. And there were candles lit in the temple that represented the ongoing continuing presence of God in that place. And so to this day, if you talk to uh, most Orthodox devout Jews, will still, wherever they are in the world, will pray facing Jerusalem. And they will still make it a habit of praying facing that place because of Solomon's temple. And uh, Solomon even said, I have built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. And so a, a Jewish person would look at that and say, forever? Oh, that means today. And so they would pray placing, uh, facing Jerusalem. Now, everybody say, what's next? Well, here's what's next. This thing called Good Friday happened next, right? You guys uh, remember the story of Good Friday? And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. A lot of significant things happened at the time of Christ's crucifixion and death but perhaps none as significant as the renting of the curtain in the temple of the Lord from the top to the bottom. This curtain was the thing that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. In other words, the only person who went behind that curtain was the priest, a high priest, and he went once a year to make atonement for the sins of Israel. And so this was the holy of holy place, right? Accessible only by, by the high priest and only once a year during the Feast of Atonement. So you can imagine how significant this was, that, that when Jesus was crucified, when Jesus gave up his last breath, bam, that curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. 
Now, many sermons have been preached about the fact that God was saying by tearing the curtain from the top to the bottom, by a divine act of God, that all men now had access to the throne room of God. And we all say amen to that. Amen? Amen. That the blood of the spotless lamb had now purchased the, the price and paid the price for the ultimate sacrifice. So now we had all had access to the, uh, to the Holy of Holies, to the, to the God of the Holy of Holies. And the work of a high priest was now finished forever. Because the one high priest, Jesus Christ, had went with the one eternal sacrifice himself and had made that sacrifice so that all coming after him would be able to have access to the Father. Amen? And that's pretty exciting news, don't you think? But I believe there's an even greater significance to the event. I believe the message that God was sending to the world was that he would no longer dwell in a man-made temple. He was also saying, this is not where my spirit will dwell any longer. By tearing the temple from top to bottom, he wasn't just saying, now you've got access to me. He was saying, guess what? I'm going to build myself a new habitation. I'm going to dwell somewhere else for the rest of eternity. This will not be my habitation any longer. Think about that. I believe that's what he was saying. And I believe that the, the, the curtain was torn so that we would understand that God was setting up house somewhere else. That it, it's not just a, a matter of we could get in, but he could now be let out. The presence of God was now going to be made manifest somewhere other than the temple of God. Now think about that. Wow, that's pretty good stuff, isn't it? Amen. Whoo, well, where is the presence of God supposed to dwell now? Again, remember, both us and the Jews, we understand omnipresence of God. God's everywhere. But we believe in the manifest presence of God, right? Amen. Okay, so now where is he, now where is he going to show up? Well, look at the day of Pentecost. That's when God was, if God was saying by tearing the curtain... I'm going to set up shop somewhere else. Then Pentecost was his exclamation mark of where he was going to set up shop. Amen? God on the day of Pentecost showed up in that upper room where the 120 gathered and they began to pray and, and, and fulfill what God told them to do. Wait there, wait there and tarry, tarry there for the promised Holy Spirit. And now as they did, the manifest presence of God showed up. And isn't it interesting that the presence of God showed up with what? Cloven of fire. God's presence showed up in a similar fashion to how it did in the tabernacle, similar as it did in the temple. And now here again on the day of Pentecost, the fire of God it comes down. And the Bible says it didn't rest in the place. It rested where? over the top of every single one of them, indicating that they would be the presence of my glory. The manifestation of my presence would now rest upon mankind, and each of them was filled with the Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues. Somebody say, yeehaw. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, God basically said, no to the tabernacle, no to Solomon's temple, yes to you being my temple. Come on. That's pretty good stuff right there. 
that don't get you wound up. You need a new watch spring, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Hallelujah. God established that the hearts of men and women, both individually and collectively, would be his dwelling place forever. That was his plan. That's why the Apostle Paul was so focused on this point throughout his letters. So consider some of these verses. Don't you know, Paul says, that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? I mean, can it get any plainer than that? Somebody say amen. Amen. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. You. Me? Yes, you. Hallelujah. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. He's saying, you know, treat your body as sacred. Why? Because it's the dwelling place of God. God lives within us. Now, again, we understand that God's everywhere. But he has made a point of manifesting his glory in us. Turn to the person beside you and say, even in you. (laughs) Even in you. Hallelujah. Wow. Let's read another one. 2 Corinthians 6.16. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? We are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. What we're experiencing today is a fulfillment of that Old Testament reference. That he will be their God and they will be his people and he will live within them. Within me. Live within you. Riley, doesn't matter whether you got a suntan or not. Holy Spirit lives within you. The fire's on the inside, girl, even if it wasn't on the outside. You know what I'm saying? It's on the inside. Praise the Lord. Are you hearing me this morning? Praise God. Wow. Whew. How about another one? Ephesians chapter 2. All right. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, everybody say you too, are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This one gives us the revelation that not only individually are we the habitation of the Lord, but corporately we are as well. We're being built together clicked together piece by piece to be the habitation of God's presence here on earth. Wow. Wow. I mean, you can, there are so many more verses where Paul nails this theme down over and over and over and over again. This is a church building. It, it doesn't look very churchy, in case you hadn't noticed. I don't know if anyone's ever actually walked in and went, Wow. This does not look like a church. And I go, oh, that's good. That's the look we were working for. We were, we were working on that. We succeeded. And we didn't have to work very hard either. We, we, we just didn't have to do much to it, and it didn't have that look. And not that there's anything wrong with the church looking like a church or anything else, so don't, don't get all 
offended by me. I'm just saying. The reality is that no matter what your church looks like, whether it has a steeple, whether it's made of stone, whether it has pews, whether it has padded chairs, whether it's you know, got pipes and stuff hanging all over the place, whether it's an outside cathedral made of trees with a, with a little bit of shade, it doesn't matter. I've preached in all of them, I've been to all of them, and the reality is Holy Spirit is in his people, not in the building. Amen? That doesn't mean you can't consecrate a place and set it aside for one purpose and one purpose only, and that God doesn't honor that, and so that when you gather together and you, you worship together in that place and you, you make a decision to honor God by consecrating it for him, that he isn't pleased with that or he doesn't take pleasure in that. He can, and he does, but the reality is the presence of God is here when you show up. When you show up. When you get here, then God is here in a special way. Well, wasn't he already here? Yes, he was. But again, we've talked about this many times as a church family, that there is the omnipresence of God, there's the indwelling presence of God, Christ living in we, and there's the manifest presence of God, where Holy Spirit shows up in special ways and does something significant by his power in our midst. How many know I love all three? I love that Father is omnipresent. I love that... Christ lives in me, he's indwelt, and I love the fact that the manifest presence of Holy Spirit that shows up and even in New Testament does supernatural things like he did on everything from the day of Pentecost to the gathering where, where you know, uh, what was his name? Uh, was it Eutychus that fell out of the, the, the roof and, and Paul had to fall on him and revive him from the dead because Paul preached too long and he fell out, you know, <laughs> I've never had it happen yet, of course. Now, I don't have anyone sitting in a windowsill, but I've, I think I've had a couple people doze off when I'm preaching before. But I try not to take it personally, you know. But the reality is, uh, it even happened to the Apostle Paul. So if it happens to me, it's okay, because it happened to Paul. But truth be known, uh, you know, it's my job then to revive you. So if I see you sleeping, uh, I either have to come down there and throw myself on top of you and breathe life into you or throw something at you or whatever, because that's what Paul did, right? So uh, is everybody following me? Bit of a divergence here, but you get the point. The Holy Spirit is here because you're here. Amen? Holy Spirit is here because we are the temples of Holy Spirit. That's the truth. That is the truth. Let me conclude with this this morning. God still dwells in his temple, a temple that's been dedicated to his glory. A temple, though, that is you and is me. Amen? That house is the church, his body. God desires that we would be vessels of honor and purity, reservoirs of his Holy Spirit. He's still dwelling in a house. It's just that a house not made, as the Bible says, with human hands. Right? A house that is made of flesh. A house that is the creation of God. Now he indwells that house. You and I. It's a wonderful privilege. I know sometimes you read the Old Testament and you say, man, how could the people of Israel have been so stupid? Come on, you can be honest. You've read it before. You've read the, you know, the, the, all the miracles that took place in Exodus, right? All the, the miracles, and then they finally leave, and the Red Sea parts, and they go through on dry land, and then the, the Red Sea collapses and kills all of Pharaoh's men. And you go, whoa, that is amazing. And then in no time flat, they're building idols. Right? Moses goes up the mountain. He's gone for a few days, and they're like, 
Someone says, hey, let's throw some gold together and make ourselves a graven image. And even brothers, uh, jo- Moses' brother Aaron, when Moses came down confronts him, says, well, you know, we all, we all started this fire. I, I threw this gold out and out came a golden calf. Right. And you think to yourself, how could Aaron have been that stupid? But you have to understand something as you read every single one of those stories. Not one person, everybody say one person. Not one person in the Old Testament got to enjoy the experience you enjoy because of Jesus Christ. Think about that. Even Moses, who had had a revelation of his glory, couldn't look at the face of God, had to look away uh, because it would have killed him. Why? Because his life, his blood, his sins had not been paid for by who? And when Jesus died on the cross, he made an access to us, for us to the Father of fathers, the Holy of holies, to the God of the universe, that you and I get to go and crawl right up his lap and say, Daddy, I have a need today. Nobody in the Old Testament ever got that. And so that's why Paul says, do you not think that you who have been given such a great revelation will also be more strictly judged? I think there's something for us to understand that, that we've been given so much that God's got, he's got a right to say to us, I expected more. But there's also a beautiful side to that message. Even though he says, I expected more, when he looks at us, it's hard for him to see any of that stuff because of the blood of Jesus. That the blood of Jesus paid the price for my sins past, everybody say it, present, and the same sacrifice pays the sins for the sins not just yesterday but today and even the ones you'll commit tomorrow if it isn't that way if it's it's accomplished any other way then jesus work on the cross was not complete his work is only complete if it pays the price for everything are you hearing me this morning so what does all this mean that as we start talking about over the next number of weeks, about the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives. First of all, we understand we're able to operate in gifts of the Spirit because of Jesus Christ. It isn't because I live more holy than somebody else, therefore God uses me instead of somebody else. You may as well dismiss that from your head right now. It's all a manifestation of His grace. You're able to operate in his gifts because of the incredible grace of God. Right? Are you hearing me this morning? Secondly, secondly, that we must understand that God has an expectation that we would be able to operate in those gifts because the Bible says that he gives them to us freely, Holy Spirit does, as he sees fit or as he determines is the need. So we're going to learn a lot of things about those gifts. We're going to learn, you know, that you don't go through and you say, well, that one's mine and that one's mine and that one's mine because they're all resident with the Holy Spirit and Holy Spirit gives them out as they're needed, right? And then the third thing we're going to understand is that the real need here is for us to open our lives to be used by the Holy Spirit. God wants to work through his people. Now, some of you get real freaked out about this, you know. And you know, that whole speaking in tongues thing, that just freaks me right out, Pastor. Um, nom, 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 nom. I say, there, you got it. See, you got it. No, that there, you know, that's a nervous condition. But, uh, you know, someone says, I- I'm not going to, you know, speak out and have somebody else interpret it or whatever. Okay, just relax. Just relax. The reality is Holy Spirit will 
give the gift to you as it's needed, and Holy Spirit will work in and through you, and he won't do it, he won't do it against your will. So if you say, I'm just too freaked out today, then he says, that's cool, then let's just get together and chill a while. But here's the beautiful thing, the closer you get to Christ, the closer you get to his presence, the closer you get to knowing him, the more eager you will be to operate in the things that are important to him, right? And, uh, and the Bible says to eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Why? Because it's important to him. It's important that we operate in these gifts. Nothing better than to be standing in the grocery store lineup and somebody's standing in front of you that doesn't know God and all of a sudden the Lord gives you a word of knowledge that you know that that person doesn't even have the money to be able to pay for those groceries, and they don't even know what they're going to do, and all of a sudden God says, gives you a word of knowledge, says, that person needs your help right now, and boom, you're able to do it. Or God says, you know, that person has, has just been diagnosed with a, a, a disease, and you need to pray for them, and you pray for them, and they're healed. How many like the sound of that? You know, that's the kind of people we're supposed to be. Going out into the world and God able to work through his people. Sometimes we think all those gifts are only for operation in here. And there's a reason why they tend to operate here maybe a little easier sometimes than to do it there. It's because we have all your faith. Or how do they say it, Nikki? All y'all. Right? All y'all's faith. We got all y'all's faith together. So therefore, that creates an atmosphere of expectation and anticipation and an ability for Holy Spirit to work in and through people's lives. But we're to be carriers of his glory out into the world. Making a difference everywhere we go. Someone say amen to that. And that is what we're going to experience over the next number of weeks. <laughs> I am so excited. My fingers are tingling. It's good stuff. It is good stuff. So stand with me together this morning and answer this question. Where does the Spirit dwell? Where does the Spirit dwell? Where does the Spirit dwell? In me. That is absolutely right. See, when you can answer that and the pastor didn't even have to prompt you with the answer, it means you listen to the sermon. That's good. Holy Spirit dwells in you. Holy Spirit wants to work through you. Holy Spirit wants to work through you. I preached a message a number of years ago, and uh, all the guys remember it. The girls had no idea what I was talking about, most of them. Uh, they came in, what was that all about, you know? about Ohm's Law. You guys remember that? And the guys all go, oh, yeah, I remember that. And, uh, and I talked about the, the only way to increase the power in a circuit is to lower the resistance, right? Because in our houses, the pressure, the, the voltage is constant. And if you look at the pressure as that, that, that uh, presence of God pushing on your life, that's a constant. Everybody is able to work because God is the one who woos us, Right? So the only way then to increase the manifestation of his power in our life is to lower your resistance. It's not about jumping through hoops. not about doing anything else. Since he's constant, since his presence is pushing on all of us, knocking on every heart, every door, the way to increase the power of God in your life is simple. Just lower your resistance. Stop resisting him. Let God do in your life what he wants to do. Does that sound pretty good? And if we'll do that, supernatural things will follow. As we stop resisting them. It's easy for us to build up a resistance in our culture because we're constantly bombarded with, with carnal or fleshly solutions to every problem. If 
from health care to financing, right? You don't have the money. You don't need to believe God for the money. You just put it on your credit card. You just get a loan, right? You need healing. You don't pray for it. You just go to a doctor. Do you know what I'm saying? So we have all of these substitutes that we have embraced in our culture. And so what happens is, is it's easy for us to build up a resistance because we have so many other means of meeting the need. But God says, lower the resistance and see what I can do in your midst. Lower it and watch me work. See what I can do. Park your attitude. Put a pause on it. Swallow your pride. Set aside all of that, that stuff and trust me, God says. Trust me. Put your hope and your expectation on me. And see what I can do. Amen? Amen. Amen. Are you with me? Are you with me? Oh, man, we are in for some good weeks. Oh, I cannot wait. All right, what I want you to do this morning as we close out this service is I want everybody in this place, this this whole sanctuary is going to become an altar of sacrifice right now. All right? So this whole place is an altar of sacrifice. So... There's too many of you to get everybody up here, so we're just going to turn the whole place into an altar of sacrifice. And what I want you to do is if you've heard what I've said this morning, and if you're saying, yes, God, I want to see your glory manifested in 2020 in the city of Belleville, in and through our lives and through my life, then I want you to raise both your hands to God right now, and this place becomes uh, a holy uh, altar before the Lord right now in Jesus' name. Father, we just pray for a release of your Holy Spirit in and through our lives. We ask that in 2020, God, that this would be a place of the indwelling of Holy Spirit because we, the carriers of his glory, are here. We are here to receive from you today, God. We are here, Lord. We want to receive what you have for each and every one of us, God, in 2020. We're asking for such a demonstration and an outpouring of your Holy Spirit in this coming year that, Lord, we will all be amazed at what God has done. Father, we're so grateful. We're so thankful that Holy Spirit lives within us, dwells within us. We thank you for your presence, Lord. We thank you, O God, that you indwell your church, that you indwell your people, God. We thank you in Jesus' name. And, Lord, this morning we receive we receive what you want to pour out in Jesus' name. Father, we're saying today we will do it by faith. We'll receive by faith, God. We will not be intimidated. We will not walk away. We will not, Father, this morning uh, be, uh, Lord, afraid of what you have. Instead, we're going to be bold in our faith. We're going to step forward, and we're going to receive, God, what you have for each and every one of us in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Father, we thank you. Put your hands together. Thank him this morning. Hallelujah. Bless you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. Bless you, Lord. Wow. Do you expect it? Come on. How many have ever had Christmas in January and February? Because that's what it's going to be like as God is going to show up and he's going to give good things to his people every single week. I'm expecting a manifestation of his gifts to be released in this place. Don't be surprised if God gives you a word for the house in the next few weeks. Don't be surprised if God puts and mantles you with a gift of healing. And we end up with, right in the middle of the worship service, just an altar time where we're laying hands on people and the sick are being healed. I'm telling you, expect it. 
It isn't just about us. It isn't just like, well, if, if I could just have Pastor Barry or Pastor Kevin pray for me, I'd be healed. No, you are a carrier of the Holy Spirit. Are you hearing me this morning? Amen. And God wants to work in our midst. Amen? All right, next week, why I'm not a cessationist, I'm going to explain it to you. And if you haven't never heard the word before, look it up. And I'll explain it to you next week. And then we're going to get right into talking about what Holy Spirit wants to do in our midst. God bless you. Amazing 2020 coming. Woo! Talk to you later.